and welcome to Reading Tolkien. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss chapter 11 of the Silmarillion of the Sun and Moon and the Hiding of Valinor. And before we get to that, I just wanted to apologize for last time's audio problems. It was quite bad quality, unfortunately. So hopefully this week things will be improved. And just a reminder that you can find us at Pod Reading on Twitter and also on Substack at Reading Tolkien. So um, do feel free to leave notes, messages there, comments, and give your opinion on the chapters that we're uh, discussing in each episode. So as I mentioned in this episode, I'd like to discuss chapter 11 of The Sun and Moon and the Hiding of Valinor. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, maybe the most mythological of the chapters in the Silmarillion during this episode, I'd like to explain why I think that is. The chapter, I think, seems to present readers with the myth of the kind we might be familiar with in our own mythological history, a so-called ideological myth or myth of explanation. Uh, mythological stories of this kind have as their goal essentially to provide a kind of explanatory story or narrative, some rather usually natural, what we would sort of think about as a natural phenomena. For example, the story of Apollo as the driver of a flaming chariot across the sky serves as um, one example. He descends, of course, into the underworld, and this presents us with a, a simple etiology uh, for movement of, um, of the sun, for example. Um, the idea also works as a kind of mythic precursor, of course, to the story told in this chapter. We can see that the story presented in this chapter has something of the same quality or qualities Godlike figures are involved or invoked. They personalize the phenomena and their behavior is cited as a kind of a reason for some aspect of the appearance of the phenomena. And when I say the appearance, I mean the way it looks to an observer, usually on the ground. In this case, for example, in this chapter, one of the or natural phenomena for which explanations are sought, or given at least, are the darker sort of areas on the moon that give it that imperfect appearance, let's say. And of course, the movement of celestial bodies as well, as in the Apollo myth. Now, we know that those dark spots have clear natural explanations. Indeed, we've been to the moon with robots and also people have been to the moon. We have seen the surface of the moon, so we know what's causing these things. But the whimsy of the myth, this myth, for example, the, the myth of, of the sun and moon in the Silmarillion, can still... I think enchanters. And perhaps this gets at something in the importance of mythological stories, something of, sort of why we still consider them to be important and we still read them and listen to them. I think perhaps the Roman poet, poet Ovid is a good, good comparative case here. Like Tolkien, he set out to give sort of literary form to a cycle of myths, in this case, Greco-Roman myth, famously. Myths which in many ways, would have been familiar to his readers. The question of did Ovid actually believe these myths, though, in some literal sense, misses the point. Almost certainly not. And it is in that literary spirit, I think, that we ought to approach of the sun and moon, even in the context of the secondary world, to use Tolkien's terminology. Certainly, it seems that Tolkien considered abandoning this story. Perhaps it was too silly, too on the nose, even for Tolkien. Later in his life that is. He noted that the elves would surely have known 
the astronomical truth. But here I think Tolkien confuses literary myth with ideological storytelling, as I mentioned. In this case, we have both an ideological myth put into literary form and assembled as part of a corpus of national or perhaps what we might call historical myth stories, if we take the Silmarillion, that is, at least in part, as a kind of Noldoran urtext or origin myth. In other words, we need not believe that the compilers of the text, whether that's Bilbo or someone else, really believe the story as a matter of ontology, that is, as an account of actual lived events, or literal events at the very least. Even if we grant that this might have been Tolkien's original intention, the development of a historicizing tradition in the story world, best exemplified, I think, by the appendices, really suggests to me at least that his hypothetical scholars were capable of sorting fact from fiction. So even in the context of the somewhat romantic and idealised picture that we're given in The Lord of the Rings, a mythological take of this sort is best understood, or so I would argue, in Ovidian terms, that is, as an attempt to give literary shape to myths with, which might have, at one point, commanded literal, literal belief, but which no longer do so as a matter of the general public, shall we say. Taken this way, I think the story becomes less of a strange outlier, and Sure, it's a bit different to the historical kind of myths that sit around it, but it's subsumed into that tradition fairly effectively. We can understand it, and even some of the more historical material associated with it, as stories given literary form in the context of a specific culture, and that is the sort of Noldoran culture, at least at first. And if we want to suggest much later compilation by, say, Bilbo, we can we can sort of think about that as well. Of course, I understand that this might be too metafictional, perhaps, a reading for some listeners and readers of the Silmarillion, and I understand that many readers of Tolkien's texts want to take them as clear sort of windows into an enchanted world. But part of the charm that world has over us is precisely that enchantment uh, remains at some indeterminate distance, never to be quite approached. And so here we have a myth its historicity clearly dubious, even within the story world, and given a part in this text textual tapestry that is the Silmarillion. Its larger import therein perhaps masked by the perplexed response many readers seem to meet it with. There are, of course, in this chapter, words of significant beauty. In my edition on page 109, These Yavana took, and the trees died, and their lifeless stems stand yet in Valinor, a memorial of vanished joy. But the flower and the fruit Yavanna gave to Ale, and Manwe hallowed them, and Ale and his people made vessels to hold them, and preserve their radiance. As is said in the Narsilion, the song of the sun and the moon. These vessels the Valar gave to Varda, that they might become lamps of heaven, outshining the ancient stars, being nearer to Arda, and she gave them power to traverse the lower regions of Ilmen, and set them to voyage upon appointed courses above the girdle of the earth, from west unto east, and to return. The Silmarillion was recently called a pastiche in an otherwise complimentary review of the recent illustrated by the author Hardback, but I think that appellation misses the beauty of a passage such as this. No doubt others would explicate its features more successfully than I can now, but for me it is a lovely balanced little paragraph anchored by the often the oft-used device known as polysyndeton, the repeated use of the conjunction and. It is true that there is something similar here to, say, the King James Bible, and together with Tolkien's deft 
use of archaism, there are clearly parallels to be made. But I don't think this is his own attempt here falls into pastiche because, at least to my eyes, it retains a clear, distinct sense of personality. Perhaps it might be worth saying more on this in the future. So however we might think about this story, I think that the story, as told here, offers a beautiful account, whimsical, and even kind of silly, the romance between Tilian and Arian. At least on Tilian's part, reminds me not so much of Lord of the Rings as Tolkien's Lost Tales. So I'm sort of glad it finds its way into the published text. So we've again focused here in our little episode on genre and questions of provenance, and also where do we imagine this and other texts have come from, who wrote them, for what purposes, etc. I think it might be fun to continue asking those kinds of questions of other chapters. But from here on, the whimsy of some of these earlier chapters, the Silmarillion especially this one, will not be much in evidence. We're going to start to shift into that real historicizing mode. So perhaps we reach something of a transition here as we return to Middle-earth and finally to mortals. <laughs>